Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the writer and legendary magazine editor James Brown. James grew up in Leeds before becoming a music journalist on the NME in the 80s and then he shot to fame in the 90s as the founding editor of Loaded magazine. Loaded was a revolution in publishing. It swerved all the po-faced trendiness of the glossy style mags and celebrated a more real, fun and hedonistic approach to life. It was inclusive, smart and very, very funny. Now he's written a book all about it. It's called Animal House and it paints a brilliantly exciting picture of his life in the 90s. But it also goes a bit deeper into the struggles of his childhood, his drug and drink problems and how he got sober. I tell you, if you like The Reset, you will love James's book. It combines brilliantly funny stories of misadventure and mayhem with honest reflections about addiction, mental health and all that jazz. James is an old mate of mine and has always been a sober role model and inspiration too, so I was delighted to chat with him for this episode. I hope you enjoy listening. James, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Congratulations on the book, James. It's really good. Um, as I'm sure lots of people, particularly blokes of my generation, would have told you, it, it's amazing, brings back incredible memories because, you know, the truth is Loaded, when it first came out, played a huge part in so many of our lives and changed our perspective on our lives and our worlds sort of thing. Uh, it certainly did with mine. So I loved reading it from that nostalgic perspective. But I also thought from a human perspective, you've been brilliantly honest about um, your addictions and your problems, like in your, you know, in your adult life, but also really, really honest and quite moving and all the stuff, the sort of roots of all that that you wrote about in your, in your childhood. Was that difficult stuff to write down? You've written much about that before. Well, thank you. First of all, um, the stuff about getting over my drug and drink problems later in life was, was easy to write because I've mm. said that many times to other, you know, in meetings, talking to other people who've, who've, who've got uh, addiction problems. So I liked writing that uh, uh, and it came pretty easily. All this stuff about the, the, the recover, the, um, the, the, the rehab counselor doing the clock and all of that sort of thing. I've told that story a lot of times. I remember you telling me that story years ago when we were first friends. Yeah, and well, I was asking you about it on behalf of someone I was close to. I was really worried about, and you told me that story about the clock, and it had a really impact, big impact. Obviously, it's quite shocking, isn't it, when you first hear it? Yeah, well, it had a big impact on me, and and it. it um, what well, I mean, a lot of people come to me now and 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 do what you did there. You know, they'll have somebody in their family, or the, maybe their wife or their husband or their son, and. And because I've been quite visible about the fact that I stopped taking drugs and stopped drinking, you know, I'm able to sort of point them in the right direction. And and when I'm recommending the counsellor that I got help from, you know, I tell people that story. And um, so that's an important thing. So that was easy to write. And I was glad I could write that. I got the opportunity. The stuff about my childhood was really difficult to write. Um, And it actually, I think... That was at the root of why it's taken me so long to finish the book. I, I found it very difficult to um, really combine the different elements of my life. And the editor kept saying, no, 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 this is what's going to make it a, a better book than just here's a load of stuff that happened unloaded. And so writing about my mum's illness 
I mean, there's stuff I've written in the book that I've never even spoken to people about. Mm. Um, that was really difficult. It was really, really difficult. And I was also aware that, you know, once it's out there, it's out there. You know, it's really private stuff. But it, in many ways, it kind of, as I was writing about it, I realised the influence and how it how it changed what happened later in my life, you know, it, how it formed my personality, uh, particularly the eating disorder. You know, when I was a kid, I couldn't, I did, wouldn't eat. I'd eat sweets and chips. And, um, but anything, I mean, even I remember like, I'm trying to get me to eat Sunday roast and me just trying to hide it under the table or retching if it went in my mouth. And I've got a therapist now and she said last year, that's anorexia nervosa. But when I was a kid, you were just called fatty. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't know why I didn't want to eat, but I couldn't eat. And the teachers, my parents would just sit there trying to get me to eat. And I remember one teacher trying to force food into my mouth. And um, I don't know. I mean, to this day, I don't really know what that's all about. But what it made me realise was I didn't have a constructive uh, history of eating. And, and so subsequently how I fuel myself meant that when I got stuff that I really liked, like sweets, was <laughs> I would just have endless amounts. And then that became the same with drink and drugs. You know, I didn't have any way of, of, uh, I didn't, I just didn't have a pattern. Mm. You know, we, we kind of have patterns in our lives, you know, we get up, wash, put our clothes on. They're all patterns. And I didn't have a structured pattern about how I fueled myself. So writing about that element of it allowed me some more insight into perhaps why I drank so much and changed the way I felt so much with drugs. And, and then writing about my mum's illness, it was difficult personally, but it was actually a lot easier in terms of the climate now because after my football book came out, about six years ago, which did well, I pitched the idea of writing a book about my what it's like to be somebody who's in a family that, that has had a, a parental or a, an immediate family suicide. And the publishers didn't really want that. <laughs> and nobody was writing about that stuff mm. at the time. And now, you know, six, seven years on, you've got Calm, which is the, uh, the organisation that tries to promote mental health concerns for men. You've got Andy's Man Club up in the north, which is a brilliant thing that they seem to do. Lou Gambler runs up there, which is not dissimilar to the 12-step meetings. People just come together and talk. Uh, and you've had people like Professor Green do documentaries about, about family suicide. And it's become a much more open topic. And so in that respect, although it was difficult for me, I knew that what I was writing would be going into a sort of a media landscape where people would be hopefully open-minded and constructive in their response to it. But I mainly wrote about it because, you know, there are other people who've gone through those kind of situations. And if you hear somebody else talking about it or you read somebody else talking about it, it might, it might help. Um, so, yeah. So, it, yeah, it was difficult, but, you know, it is what it is. You're absolutely right. And it's, it is sort of, it is nice that, you know, 
people can share these experiences now without feeling like they might be judged or anything. I mean, you write really interestingly about your personality in your school days, you know, and you already like you describe yourself as a loud mouth, you know, cocky, um, funny, uh, all of these sort of personality traits. But you, you, you know, you do seem to link that into the sort of pain that you were feeling inside. Do you know what I mean? Do you think a lot of those things that actually, you know, a lot of that has been so fantastic for you in, in your career, the fact that you are funny, confident and all of those things really helped you. But you seem to suggest that at school a lot of the time, you know, and I'm sure a lot of lads can re- relate to this, is that you're sort of using that as a distraction or an armour. Well, I don't know really. I think when I was little, I was good at football. So I always played with older kids, you know, one, two, three years older than me. And and I think you just had to assert yourself really because I wasn't a tough kid. You know, I wasn't even physically strong. I was super skinny. So I would just be lippy to make them laugh. And that sort of got a form of acceptance with these kind of bigger kids. And they were good footballers as well, the, the people I was playing with. Um, so I think there was an element of that. I think, um, as I said in The Guardian the other day, I, I've never really thought about this before, but I think, you know, the dominance of the football team, the, the, the city's football team leads and the, and the character and the personality of that team had an influence on me and my mates. You know, when Don Revy's saying the attack is the best form of defence, uh, when you see Bremner and Childs and Reaney and co, you know, Norman Hunter getting stuck in, you kind of just, I mean, Le- Leeds was quite a brittle city. You know, you, it was very easy to be, find yourself in fights. You'd kind of see violence around. I mean, I lived in quite a nice area. It's mainly, I grew up where the students live now and there were some students lived there then. Um but, you know, at school, there'd be a lot of fights. And so I guess it was just, I guess I just found mal- being mouthy was a way to get through it. But I think some of it was, yeah, I mean, I wasn't going home feeling nervous or anything like that. And the next day, winding up with a load of abuse for people. It wasn't like that. It Maybe it was like a subconscious sort of thing. Hmm. Um. In the sort of loaded era, like I say, it's sort of, you know, I was a student when it started. I didn't know you then, um, but I remember reading it and it just like sort of blew my mind because you suddenly thought, oh, someone's made a magazine that's for me and my mates. How did they know? In that era where we where we all sort of lived that way and, and the so-called laddism era and all that, I suppose the thing was we were all like almost going out of our way to take nothing seriously at all, right? Um, or or be self-reflective. I know I wasn't. There was no reflection whatsoever, was there? It was just good times, take nothing seriously, don't reflect on anything. But that's essentially what being young is. Mm. I don't think that's because of the decade or the date. I think that's just about where people are in life. I mean, what you said at the beginning, that was a really common reaction. Um, the story I tell in the book is that about two weeks after the first issue came out, these two kids came in, they were, they were like 16, 17 year old post boys came in with like the gray IBC post room polo shirts and dragging this sack. And it was like, you know, a kind of a plastic fabric sack and they chucked it down. I went, what's that? And I thought it was a bag of bags. 
And he went, it's your post. We've been looking all over the buildings for you because IPC had a big tower, which if you read magazines closely, you might recognise the name King's Reach Tower. And then they had a smaller five-floor building that cut round into the tower. So that was sort of like, that was something like 36 different possible floors. And then they had another set of buildings opposite the main entrance, which is where we were and where Marie Claire were. We were on top of Marie Claire and, and next to uh, 90 Minutes magazine and then later Music and uh, Goal. So we weren't in an obvious location. And these, these kids, young guys came in and dumped these down and we opened them and said, well, this is our mail. And they went, yeah. And it was, it was genuinely hundreds and hundreds of letters and postcards. This predated social media and email. And he said, there's another two bags downstairs. So they came up and we poured these sacks out and there was just a total huge pile. It reminded me of when I was a kid watching Blue Peter and they would ask for people to send things in like stamps at Christmas uh, or milk bottle tops or things like that. I don't know what they do with them, but um, and they, they, it would be like, so there was this enormous, and we just sat there reading all these letters and they were all saying pretty similar things. They were all positive. Um, and it was fan mail, really, really. It wasn't, it was just saying, this magazine is my life or it's like you've made a magazine just for me and mm. thank you and stuff like that. And um, so, so that starting point that, that you said was just such a, it, the response was so fantastic. We didn't really feel any need to reflect on what we were doing. We were just having fun and there's nothing wrong with having fun. You know, I think your life, you know, if you can have fun in your life, whether it's just going for a bike ride for 10 minutes or watching a show that makes you laugh or just being with a friend or a partner that, that, that you, you're comfortable with and you like doing stupid things with or, or, or interesting things with, there's nothing wrong with having fun. You don't have to have self-reflection when you're having fun. The whole point is it's reflection. You look back on it afterwards. You don't look mm -hmm. on it at the time. Um so, yeah, I don't think, were, I'm trying to think if I was ever thinking about what we were doing and it was just like stimulation. It was constant stimulation. Mm. And then um, funnily enough that um, Rolling Stone sent this guy I knew over to write a piece. He came to interview me. He was called Stephen Daly and he had been originally in Orange Juice, the band. And then he went, not, not the drink. <laughs> and he, was, he went off to America to become a journalist and he said, I'm writing a piece about the oversensitization of, of Britain, about the visibility of sex, the drunkenness, drugs. And when I called him when I was writing a book, he said, I don't remember that. I remember writing, going to write a piece about Britain is drunk. And he came and gave me that. And there was just, I think there was just a sense of just, I think, it, I think the contributing factors were ecstasy made drug taking a lot less demonised. It was easy to get a pill. Um, people obviously took it as part of going out. Uh, for, for many people, it was seen as as normal as having a drink uh, in, a, in a nightclub. And then the emergence of, of, of England and, and English-based football becoming good again at, at nine, in, you know, in the 90 World Cup, that was really exciting. That was the best England had done in like 24 years. And... 
and then being able to see football all the time on after Sky started. And then, you know, just before Loaded came out, they introduced um, all day drinking. They changed the licensing laws. So things just started to get better through the 90s. And then and I think because of the hardship of the 80s, when there was mass unemployment, there were heroin issues, there was a government that was kind of trailing away and didn't really have much interest in, in, in large parts of the, of the population. Um, a lot of creative people were forced into doing their own thing. So people were starting record labels. Uh, you know, people were starting clothing lines. People were running raves. People were writing and publishing their own books. Um, or people like me and my mates, we were doing magazines, fanzines. And, and so as, as the country changed a little bit, there, were, there was a generation of kind of entrepreneurs and creative people who just saw this open space and went for it. So that's kind of what was going on. People were having a lot of fun and there was nothing wrong with that. What about the, um, tell us about the point at which you realised that your own sort of antics and drinking and drug taking were going too far? There's, there's, a, there's an awful lot of things that I wrote for the book that I ended up leaving out, mainly just because of disorganisation. But there was one moment I remember sitting on, on a, in a toilet in, um, in Camden, in somebody's house in Camden. And I was sort of finishing the end of a wrap. And I looked at the bottom of the wrap and it was just my face staring out at me through the remnants of cocaine because a lot of dealers used to use loaded to cut up and, uh, you know, they'd, yeah. they'd use the, it was the magazine that was around or they could cut it up and put their wraps in. And that was, that was quite a strange moment, but it wasn't an alarm bell or a signifier that I should change. Um, I think I was just getting, I was getting worn out at Loaded. It was so intense. We were being invited to parties and events and launches and festivals from all sorts of different industries. And when I'd worked on the NME, you'd just go to Reading and that'd be one weekend and you'd go to Glastonbury with another weekend. You might go to a foreign festival occasionally. Somebody might get invited. And then you went to loads and loads of gigs. Well, imagine you then add that to the motor industry, the fashion industry, the publishing industry, computer games industry, um, the football industry. And we were just absolutely fucking just knackered, really, but in a good <laughs> way. There was yeah. every night we the loaded sort of, I suppose in my time there, there would be been about eight and 14 people on the staff. We would just go out en masse. Maybe people would go to a different thing and you'd go back in in the next morning and you go, what did you do last night? I said, oh, Beth got chatted up by Ron Atkinson. <laughs> <laughs> or, oh, we, ended, we ended up doing this or doing that. And, and we were absolutely inundated with opportunities to do things. And we were doing lots of different types of editorial. You know, we were doing a lot of foreign trips. We were doing a lot of fun things. Every month we'd go off and do something, which I used to call her outdoors, you know, the, dealing with Mother Nature. You know, we go basically um, people from the city doing things that are difficult in the country badly because that would lead us <laughs> great, you know, living in a cave for a week in Scotland or trying to go kayaking. And um, it made they made for great stories. So you do yeah. that, you'd come straight back and just be straight back into the drinking and drug lifestyle. And um, 
you know, I can remember, yeah, anyway, so the, so the intensity of what we were doing just built and built and built and built. And then a couple of the editors, senior editors dropped away. And then my boss kind of had stepped away. And I could probably have just done with a break, you know, maybe a month off or something, but I didn't really know how to stop drinking or, or, or using. And it just took me leaving Loaded to get into an environment at Condé Nast, which was a very posh magazine company where I went to sort GQ out for them to realise how, you know, give a, a stark comparison to how other people behave. And... um so that was it. I kind of, I think moving over there made me realise that it probably wasn't normal how we'd been behaving at Loaded. In fact, it was quite abnormal. Mm. Yeah, a lot of it is that, isn't it? You can easily, if you're surrounded only by people who behave in the same way as you, totally. you just think it's fine and the change of context. But Sam, that was socially and professionally. Yeah. I genuinely, in 1997, I genuinely thought everybody took drugs. Yeah. It was a real, and my one mate who didn't, who I didn't hang out with, who didn't take drugs. There was one guy on Loaded who didn't take drugs. Everyone else did. Um, there was... Uh, the one mate who didn't could drink... 30, he was a teacher. He could think he could drink 13 pints, no problem. So yeah. we were living in an era... I mean, it wasn't exclusive to my magazine and my friends. We were living in an era when kind of hedonism and, and, and self-stimulation were rife, you know? Ebenezer Good was a massive hit. And there's Shaman has stood there. Mr. C stood there, number one at the chart, shouting, "He's a good, he's a good." You know, it was kind of like, yeah, things were just prevalent. I remember, well, cigarettes and alcohol was like a massive hit and an anthem. There were so many songs just about getting off your face. Yeah, all your dreams are made when you're tied to the mirror with a razor blade. Yeah. You know, was he talking about a boring day starting shaving, or was he talking about <laughs> chopping out a line? Yeah. I tell you one thing though is that uh when I first met you, you you'd already been sober a few years. In the in the years since I've been sober, seven years, it's become a lot more common. And like you said, the climate's different, people talk about it, they're more able to talk about it, be open about why they're sober, you know, whereas in the past people were like almost a little bit sheepish about admitting they had a problem and stuff. What I noticed with you when I first knew you was, is that, you know, you owned it right from the beginning. And it strikes me that it wouldn't have been as easy when um, in those days, because like I say, it's a different era. You were still working in that industry. It, it must have been pretty tough, although I always felt that you owned it and you sort of presented a very positive and aspirational version of being sober because it wasn't like you'd become, you were very outgoing person who, who could who could behave like you're out of it even when you weren't in many ways yeah, well, you know what I mean it, it can't have been easy though for you I did own it because I was aware of I got it I think mm. that was the key thing I got it I understood I was behaving in a way where certain circumstances I was lucky not to have been hurt badly either by myself or by situations I was in and I didn't like the powerlessness I felt. I didn't like not being in control. And I, I genuinely was just, what I used to say was, I could still say it is, it was like there was a bath running and there was no plug-in and no one was turning the taps off. That's what my body felt like. It felt like there was just stuff pouring through me and it wasn't stopping. There was no way it was going to stop. 
And I just understood that when I was, I was open-minded enough that when I, somebody, when the people at, at, who own GQ sent me to a rehab place, that um, the rehab counsellor, what he was saying, I, was, I knew that I wanted to, I, I just didn't want to feel like I did at four o'clock in the morning in some hotel room or some bar under the pavement in Soho or, you know, somewhere just talking lots of rubbish with people. It's the same old stuff going on and on and on. Everyone just waiting for some khaki, claggy, badly stepped on Coke to be shared out. And it was just, I didn't want to be in those situations anymore. And, and I think to stop whatever you've, addicted to you've got to get to a point where you you have to realize that it, it would be better to stop if you still think oh, i can still do this or it might be okay but just you've got to understand that thought that is is not the right thought i mean i think a lot now about drinking especially sunny summer days you know when you're at a restaurant and people are having a glass of wine you think oh this would be nice but i never drank like that just I wouldn't have a couple of glasses of wine and they go, oh, that was nice and go off. I would just keep going. I'd have a bottle and another bottle and another bottle. And, um, you know, and it would just keep going until like the early hours of the morning. I'd get about five, six, seven hours sleep, get up, find, you know, pat my pockets to see if I had any coke left, take it, get off, go to work. And um, so because I was aware that I wanted to stop when I did, finally get to the point where the, the drug counsellor kind of made it absolutely clear things were going to get a lot better. Sorry, things were going to get a lot worse. I was just prepared to give it a go and um, I just didn't want to go back. I didn't, mm -hmm. I didn't want to go back to how I was. So then once I was sober, I mean, it was like supporting leads really, you know, you are what you are. That's what I felt like. I felt quite forthright about it. I didn't think I was better than anybody. And I, I mean, Clive, the counsellor, said to me, you know, you, you're treading a very tight, you, you know, you're walking a, a tightrope here. You're treading a very fine line because I was still socialising with people who were doing coke. And, um, and but I was doing that to prove that I could do it. And I remember I used to go to the supermarket on Sunday morning, go and get the shopping for the week and I'd, on my own. And I'd always walk down the drinks aisle. And I used to recount that line, you know, about walking through the valley of death. <laughs> and um, it was just a challenge. It was, it was kind of like holding your hand over the flame, but I never, I'd had enough, you know. I mean, I'd love to take acid again and sit out in a field and look at what the hell is going on. I'd, I'd quite like to smoke grass. It doesn't go away. I've mm. got no real desire to take any more cocaine or, or, or any other powders. But I... I um, I think if you know you want to stop, then that allows you to the point where at least you can be open-minded about trying to find a way to do it differently. Um, also, I wasn't going to have any, I didn't think there was any stigma to it. I remember what I was thinking about it now when I was a kid, my friend, one of my friend's dads, I remember other parents saying, oh, he's an alcoholic. And it seemed like it was a bad thing. I only remembered this recently. And um, I've never really thought like that. You know, if people think that, that that's their loss, you know, mm. that's a bad thing. I mean, it's not a, it's not something you necessarily choose to be. You know, I don't know whether it's genetic or whether it's, you know, family circumstances growing up or what, what whatever the main reason it is that people overindulge on things and are, in, and are incapable of um, 
you know, they're incapable of, of stopping. Um, but I didn't think like that because I just knew I was getting into a better place. And my big fear was that stopping drinking would be boring. Yes. But the reality of it was the repetition and the powerlessness and the circumstances I was finding myself was becoming really boring when I was using. Like when I look back, I don't know why I stopped smoking grass, but that seemed to stop. I mean, maybe I just stopped having, a, I used to like doing that, but even that, I mean, some people chill out doing that. I'd be on the top of a van driving back from a gig on up the M4, letting the guy slam the brakes on to see how far I could fly off. Mm. You know, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't a normal, you know, just stupid, excessive things. Um, I was just better off out of it. And I was, I wasn't, I wasn't proud of it. I didn't think, as I said, I didn't think I was better than anyone else. People can do what they want. Um, I just found for me that by that point, I didn't really want to take cocaine and, and, and drink as much. And then what I found out was there was just no way of minimizing it. Some people can do it. Some people can't. I mean, I've had people come to me and ask me about stopping and, uh, and what they've done is they've ended up stopping taking cocaine and and they, they didn't have a drink problem. They weren't addicts. They'd mm. got involved in an, an, an addictive drug and they were, they're able to do it. I mean, that's, that's a few people. That's not a lot of people. I mean, I've had other people who, who come and say they're going to do stuff and, you, and you, they just carry on and nothing changes. But um, I think, um, I just think I was honest about it. I didn't, I, didn't I remember I, I, you know, the writer, Tony Parsons, novelist, mm. Tony, we were having lunch one day and he's, and um, I think it might have been quite early on when I was still editing GQ and he was, I'd got him in to be a columnist and the waitress offered us a drink and I said, I'm okay. And she said, are you sure you don't want one? You want me to just pour one? And Tony looked at her and said, he's thought about it. <laughs> he doesn't want one. And I thought that was a really nice comment, you know, to say that he's thought about this, he's made this decision. He's, mm. he's, mm. he's, um, and then you have the other side of it, you'd have people offering you a drink. So, you know, the, I mean, but you know, never. And I just kind of the only, the only thing that I changed socially that was huge was I stopped going on stag do's and I didn't go to Glastonbury for a few years. And, um, I just thought there's no way you could probably go on a stag do and be sober. This was in the early days of recovery. And then I used to have this guy called uh, Steve Cadwell. He, he, he was a little bit of an animal. He, he used to work for me selling ads on my magazine, Jack. And he said to me, hey, Gaffer, will you come on the stag do? And I said, it's kind of tough, Steve. You know, it's the one, one of the couple of few areas where I, I think I would struggle. He said, it'll be fine. I said, well, we'll, we'll go to Barcelona. I said, who's going? He said, it's, it's just a few of the boys from the ad team, my mates from the SAS and the rugby, <laughs> and my rugby team that I play for. <laughs> I looked at him and I said, definitely not going, Steve. <laughs> he had a couple of mates in the SAS and uh, he said, and then his rugby team and the ad boys, I mean, the ad boys were fine, you know, they, they, obviously I drank it in, in soft drinks in a pub with them on a Friday mm. night, but... So I very, I mean, later on in life, I was perfectly able to go on the stag do's, and later I went back to Glastonbury. But you know, it you not find it? I mean, 
you know, first of all, I I think that you did an um, you know you 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 don't see it maybe, but you did do an amazing job of being sober at a time when I think it would have been difficult because I think there was stigma to say you're an alcoholic. I think there was more people, less people were probably sympathetic when you said you didn't want to drink. What happened, Sam, was I found other people who didn't drink. Yeah. that's That was key to it. I found um, I found other people, self-help groups, and after a couple of years of being sober, I, I got some friends who were the same sort of people that I would probably have hung out with. Mm. So... I, you know, I had a couple of mates who, who worked in uh, for sportswear brand. I had a couple of other mates who, you know, I had a mate who's a, who's a writer, film writer. Uh, and so I also got lots of people that the similarities in our recovery or the similarities of the way we'd used became, gave us a commonality to be friends who I had nothing in common with. So that was important, going and spending time with, with with other people who, who who were who were comfortable not drinking and or certainly weren't using that so there were and there's lots of people like that you know I mean I gotta be honest when I when I um, jacked it all in you were one of the people in my mind that were an example of well he's not boring do you know what I mean because that is that's the most one of the most common things that people say and I know you you've written it in the book. As you said it here today, like you were worried you'd become boring. And it's so common that people say that. And I had a few people in my mind who I knew who didn't drink. And I thought, and almost all of them weren't like, I thought, bloody hell, I can't imagine what James was like when he was on gear because, you know, he, he doesn't seem short of energy as it is. So I think that that really is um, really positive. The fact that you owned it so well from such an early stage, because it, sort of made it look appealing to other people, including me. So I think that's amazing. But one thing that I wanted to ask you up before I let you go is like, you know, ups and downs still happen, of course. It's a lot easier, I've found, when you're not relying on drugs and alcohol to sort of cope or alter your mood. But how, in all the years that you've been sober, when bad times come or bad moods or something like that, how, how do you, what are the tools you use now to get through those moments? Hammer, saw, chisel. <laughs> um, well, I think about the things I've learned through going through a recovery process. I think that I try to identify. Well, first of all, I'm not I'm not great at it, like anybody. You know, if you if you kind of relationship breaks down or something tough happens with your kids or or. Um, you know, if you get a challenge for your work or whatever, there's no magic wand. You just, you know, you, you're confronted with the same fears and the same sense of regret or the same sense of like whatever, you know, is is, is challenging you. Uh, sadness. Um, I think I'm lucky in that, you know, you, I knew, I know other people who work on themselves and I'm able to call them and, and, and get help or I go to places where other addicts congregate and ex, you know, recovering addicts congregate and I just open up and talk about it. Um, that's why I think the Andy's man club thing is great. You know, there aren't any of them in the, in the South yet, no. but like, but if you look, if you look them up, if you're listening to this and you live in the Midlands or the North or Scotland, 
I've not been to one, but I've been to one. I went to one in Peterborough. Yeah, it's very which is sim- closest that I could find one to London. Yeah, I mean it's very it's very similar to like the tw- some some elements of the twelve step meetings, and it's uh, so I think just talking to people is a way of dealing with it. I mean, I've only thought about having a drink four times, like properly thought about it. Two of them was after my football team I was coaching did really well. And they were just, what would happen was, you know, I started coaching this team because it was also, they needed a coach and also my little boy, it was another way to spend some more time with my little boy when his mum and I got divorced. And um, there were a couple of games when they were just so good. And then what happens is, you know, there were days, there were days when he wasn't coming with me on, on for me for the weekend. And so the, the kids would all go off with their parents. I'd just be stood on Market Road feeling absolutely exhilarated at 7.30 on a Friday night. Mm. <laughs> and it would, that would be how I used to feel 35 years ago. And there were a couple of times when I just thought, right, let's go and get a drink. And it, it wasn't like I have a, Sometimes I think about it now, quite often, you know, but I go through the process. It really was, yeah, let's go and have a drink now, just to keep that euphoria building. And and then there were there was, I remember there was a relationship thing roughly around that same time when I just was going out with somebody who wasn't particularly helpful to go out with for about six months. And uh, there was a moment there when I just thought, right, fuck it, there's a bar in here now. I'm going to just, it was a, I looked around the square I was in, and if there'd been a pub, I'd have probably gone in and certainly I'd have walked in with the intention of having a drink. I don't know if I'd have picked one up. Um, and then I think there's two others, but I can't remember what they were. I remember thinking for years it was four, and then I think another one came. Um, what I do know is that if I have a drink, it's it's going to take me back to where I was before. Also, I'd lose my clean time, mm. which is, you know, I've, I've not, I've not had a drink or a drug for 24 years and I don't want to do that. I don't want to go back to being one day sober, but you know, I, I, I'm like just being sober today. So I didn't, I didn't want to lose that. And, um, it's a good question. How do I deal with it? I just think talking to other people, you know, people that I've got to know who are, who don't drink, you know, um, I think that's helped. I've got a friend called, called Paul who I speak to if things have been really bad. I, mean, I had a really bad day. I had a little bit of a bad period a, couple, a few years ago when things in all different areas were just going absolutely fucking tits up. I'd never, never realised, you know, when you see those flats blowing up, you know, when they're destroying flats mm. and they got one, two, three, go. And I, I'd never experienced anything like that before. That that was kind of like three or four things just kept happening at once. And I, um, so that was a difficult moment. And I just, I rang up my mate. I just rang up my mate who, who'd helped me in the early days of, of stopping drinking. And I just sat on a wall and spoke to him and he kind of talked it through. And, and, and you know, we got, we got kind of there, but, um, you know, we got into a better place. But, I mean, you know, I'll tell you one thing about writing this book. I had a feeling I've never had before where I stopped. I was self-sabotaging on writing the book. So, like I say, you know, I wasn't keeping it up. I mean, I should have, would have helped to add an assistant or a secretary or somebody just to keep the stuff in order. 
And near the end, I started rewriting all the stuff that I thought people would really want to read about, which was the enemy and the melody, the enemy and the unloaded years. And there's so many great stories that I haven't put in there. And so I keep finding documents with brilliant passages of writing that I didn't put in mm. and funny stories. I keep thinking, why did I edit that out? Or why did I not even include that? Um, but I remember I must have bust about five, six, seven deadlines. I mean, I'm talking years. And then pandemic was brilliant because most, some people wrote books, got mm. fit, learned whole new skills in pandemic. I just, it was just, I was just thinking, great. Everybody has to just do nothing like I'm doing now and stay <laughs> in and watch TV. And, and I found an, I found a message yesterday to somebody saying it's coming out in February, 2020. And it's actually come out two and a half years later than that. Um, anyway, so I was self-sabotaging possibly about the fear of writing the stuff about my, my mom or whatever it was. or And, the night before what I thought was the final, final deadline, and I still was way off with various bits, I just felt like inside I had pressure building and building and building and building, like a balloon filling up inside your body and your head, and, and I just wanted it to stop. I wanted that pressure to stop. And, you know, for me, suicide isn't... An, has never really been a viable option because of what happened with my mum. I wouldn't want my kids to feel like how, you know, our family felt with my mum going. And But at that moment, I just wanted that pressure to stop. And I started thinking, you know, if I wasn't alive, I wouldn't have to tell Richard tomorrow I've not finished the book. And it was right. just... And, and, and that gave me an insight into... You know, people who do go out, you know, and just take their lives because of the pressure of what's going on, of not being able to feed their kids or losing their job or their relationship ending or whatever. Um, yeah, that was not, that wasn't a great, I mean, you know, and literally that's just because I'm writing a story about being on holiday with Vic Reeves or <laughs> South America with, with the loaded team or, you know, in Manchester with Sean Ryder or whatever, you know, they're just, mm. it's just stupid, really. I mean, it just, but I can understand how people get into that situation. I can't remember how I got out of that. I think I just told them I hadn't finished. <laughs> well, that's it. You put one foot in front of the other, don't you? I suppose people listening to this, you, you've given two really simple but valuable bits of advice. One is, is that like opening up and talking to people makes a huge difference. It's like a good release valve, but also, when things seem really bleak, if you just do the next thing you have to do, eventually you get through it. Like you, you got the book written. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, yeah. I mean, there's enough to do another book straight away. So hopefully I'll sell enough of these for them to give me some more money for the next one. Well, mate, it is a really great book. I mean, it really is great. I've been devouring it over the last few days. And it's not just because obviously, it's a very nostalgic for me, the times you're writing about, but also it's really open-hearted. It's really honest. And it's like, yeah, it is so much more. By the way, if it had just been a series of anecdotes about you at the enemy and loaded, I'd have still loved it, but you've gotten the extra and people have still bought it, but you've done something extra special there. So I'm glad that however long it took, you did it because mm. you've written something to be really, really proud of. And I think, you know, I just want to say again, you've been a great example to a lot of blokes 
and if they read this book, if there's blokes struggling, they will. I think they'll get a lot out of it, and it might point them in the right direction. I mean, it was strange. Thanks. It's nice of you to say that. It was just what kept going through my head and kept going in emails back and forth with the editor is, do people really want to know about, um, <clears throat> you know, the pressures I was under in my late teens or under 20s because, you know, the pressures my mum was under. And then the next minute, read about me, right, you know, opening the envelope that had the KLF's first record or the Charlatan's first demo tape. It, it seemed incongruous and um yeah you know i couldn't really get my head around the idea but i'd you know whatever it's, i mean it's what, so important though it's, it's, it's glad i'm glad we talked about this because there's about five or six different elements of the book and it's been with me so long that i kind of forget some so i did an interview with josh Whittycombe, the comedian and just talking about the football concept mm, mm. he was talking about like when i was on acid and i met louis van gaal and uh, <laughs> at the ajax you know in the ajax press room and i totally forgotten about this because these stories are from like 19 the 990s so i've mm. just really really old stories and there were so many of them it was really and then i was struggling to get everything in and there's, a, there's an editor in America that I know called Corey Seymour. And he was Hunter Thompson's editor on Rolling Stone. And uh, I met Corey after he co-edited a book of Hunter's letters or something. And I, I wrote to him and I thought, ah, that's Corey. He'll know how to deal with this. He's dealt with somebody who was, who was like, you know, probably delivered too few or too many words. And he had great advice as a writer. He, he said, this is just some advice that somebody had given him, was that, Writing a book is like going on holiday and packing your suitcase. You don't put every single item of clothing and every single book and every single toiletry that you own in that suitcase. You just put the best ones. Mm. And that, that was a really great relief. And at that point, I took probably 30,000 words out of the book. I took <clears throat> 5,000 words about managing a band out between, lo between enemy and loaded I took about 5,000 words out of being um, when I was first living in London and, and, and working in Soho on the NME. I took loads of like, NME stuff out because I thought if I take a lot of the NME stuff out, I can write another book around that. And what I kept from the NME was the writing about the bands that influence the way my personality was and the way Loaded would become so... Beastie Boys, Popoli itself, Marky Smith, um, Bill and Jimmy in the Jams, who became the KLF, um, Joe Strummer. I can't, but like, you know, I had this massive, massive section about being in America with a cult, which was great. I, really, I mean, I had the best time in America with a cult. They were just brilliant. And uh, my piece ran over about 6,000 words over two weeks in the enemy. So I just thought if I take some of these big, music pieces also i was wrote in debt about the, the very first night i went to new york i met brett easton ellis and jay mckinney two great novelists in a just in a bar i've got like pictures of me talking to them or there's a bit you know there was so many different things uh, writing about that period and, and what i'm going to do next hopefully on you know in terms of another another memoir is use my music stories to do like, you know, mm. be able to structure all my writing about when I first went to Berlin, when I was 18, when I went to Russia, when I was 22, 
you know, what first time I went to Los Angeles, first time I went to New York. And, and so it's about really going places and meeting people. But there was just so much of it. I mean, the thing about working on a magazine is every week you're writing and every week you're doing things. And, you know, I would go to um, Paris to see James on a Thursday night, come back on a Friday morning, write it up. Saturday, it'd be the Reading Festival. Come back Monday morning, write it up. Tuesday, we'd start a new issue, you know, yeah. and I might be going off to an interview um, the Primitives or Derek B or Public Enemy or whoever was a Nana Cherry, whoever Sonic Youth, all of these different bands that were coming through. And it was a it was a high turnover of interviews and activities. And you'd either be somewhere absolutely amazing and luxurious, like the Mondrian Hotel in Beverly Hills, or I'd be in a van in Manchester with a skate punk band called the Stupids. You know, there was it was constant. And I was like really prolific writer. I, I was, you know, I thought it was a cavalry charge, really. I didn't, I thought we were fighting a music war. I mean, I've got to the end of the book. I've not written about going to, you know, the. I've not written much about Oasis, but they were like a constant soundtrack about middle period. Yeah. I've written about when they gatecrashed my birthday and I've written about meeting Liam a couple of times, but, you know, that, that pinnacle of, when they played Nebworth and I watched it from the front and we stood next to Alan McGee and, and, and we'd both done fanzines at the same time. And um, it felt like, I turned to Alan and I said, the war is won. Yeah, yeah. At that point, the best band in the world were also the biggest band in the world. But yeah. six or seven years before, I would have thought the best band in the world probably might not even have had a record deal. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, and that would be people like Steve Lamack and myself on the enemy looking for new bands to champion. And um, so there was all of that. And there was a, there was a key moment in the book when, that, that I again, that I missed out was I was so involved in producing the first issues of Loaded. I was missing other stuff that was going on. I remember four or five of the guys coming in to the office on a Wednesday morning, I think it was, and just going, we've seen this amazing band, Oasis. You've got to come and see them. They're absolutely amazing. He said, the PR let us into the 100 Club through the back door because it was at capacity and it was absolutely brilliant. And then about three or four weeks later, maybe even two weeks later, they played at um, the Astoria, which is a much, much bigger build, building. I mean, it's gone now. It's a tube station or something. But um, And the same thing. And they they just came back and said, you've, James, you've got to see this, the band. You're going to love them. They're amazing. And then, so that's not in there. And then also going to see, going, I, I like the fact that Oasis came just after I'd left the enemy because I didn't have to have an opinion on them. Mm. You know, I didn't have to be, it was the first time a band, a band emerged that I could just be a fan of again, as, which is how I got into all of this, was being a fan of music in Leeds in, this, in the kind of 70s and 80s. And um, when, when Oasis played Main Road for the first time, I drove up with my wife and we got a couple of tickets off the Mannix. No press stuff, no backstage, no VIP lounge, which I could have probably got. Um, and we just went and stood in the crowd it was absolutely great because we were surrounded by people largely in their early to mid-teens singing along with quite high-pitched mank voices. And it was like seeing out of a taste of honey, mm. you know, and it, that, for me, that for me was a great moment because I spent years on the side of the stage with the Happy Mondays or, you know, 
hanging around in the early hours of the morning with John Squire and Ian Brown in Stockholm. And uh, I'd had that, that close access that the enemy gave. <clears throat> and it was just, it, you know, the, so I haven't written any of that. Yeah, I mean, well, that, that's interesting one. because actually that was what Loaded got right. Going back to what he said, it's like, even though we were all aware after six issues or whatever that it was like the biggest magazine out there and the one everyone was talking about, it never came across as an exclusive club at all. And it's quite indicative that you, on the enemy, you were backstage. But even when you were editing the biggest magazine in the country, you were there in the crowd. That sort of sums up really what the appeal of Loaded was. We we would read all these stories and see pictures of you all doing these things and just sort of think that you were like us. And that was completely unique for any magazine. That was deliberate though, Sam. That was deliberate. Yeah. There were two reasons for that. One was when I was on, when I was first earning money to write about music on sounds, the reviews editor, if a band was reviewed, uh, in Edinburgh or Manchester or Newcastle, it would just say Newcastle, Edinburgh, mm. Manchester. If they were reviewed in London, it would say Dingwalls, London. Oh, yeah. Or the Rock Garden, London, or the Shepherds, well, it wasn't Shepherds Bush Empire then, but, you know, they would name the about... So it was like the venues in London were more important. And at the same time, you know, some of the, the glossy magazines that are around, like The Face and, and, and uh, uh, Blitz and things like that, and Arena, they're they spent a lot of time focusing on the importance of where those staff were hanging out, which was mm. kind of wine bars in Soho and Mayfair and so on. And just meant nothing to me living in Kirkstall and Leeds and then Fallowfield in, in Manchester. Um, it, 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 it meant nothing. And it, it seemed like these media publications thought that London was more important, but I, I mean, all the bands that were like making work coming out of London, yeah. You know, the Pixies weren't from London. The Happy Mondays weren't from London. The Farm weren't from London. Prefab Sprout weren't from London. Whatever type of music, you know, the Nightmares in Wax weren't from London. Whoever you liked, whatever type of music yeah. you liked, it was just, it was all happening in different parts of the, of, of, of the world and the country. And so that was deliberate. But then also, when I left at the NME, we genuinely thought we were better than the readers and the bands. <laughs> I mean, one of the reasons I left the enemy was I was sick of talking to bands that just weren't as engaging on the page as I knew I could be, which mm. is an arrogant thing to say, but it's what I felt. I got I got tired of listening. I just thought I'd rather just write all the write the stuff and not even put any quotes in. I mean, some people obviously were brilliant, like Mark Smith or or um, you know, the Beasties were always brilliant to write down about. And um I just wanted no barriers between the readers and the writers. And that absolutely was a deliberate yeah, thing. And totally uh, inclusive. And I banned the word style. Yeah. Absolutely banned it. At one point, Adam Black, who was starting out, rang up, was ringing a PR and he said, oh, I'm ringing from this new style magazine. And I actually put my fingers on the black pips that the phone in those <laughs> days sat on. And he looked at me said, what are you doing? I said, Adam, we're not a style mag. You know, and the same with putting when Steve did the the art director did the loaded logo with a lower L, that mm. was intuitive of him because everybody else, like if you looked at those magazines before, like Gentleman's Quarterly and Esquire, you know, they were kind of like uppercase. You mm. know, they were big E and a big G and a big Q, and uh, and they were pompous. And even though you know some of them had good, Esquire had good interviews, but an arena had, had had some good stuff in it. But I wanted it to be 
feel like a night out that I would have experienced with me and my mates. And that was yeah. a deliberate... It did, and, and all the old art directors, you can talk about logo, but I'm looking at the cover of your book, which is a fantastic cover, by the way, and has obviously been been done in the style of, of early loaded. But, you know, the crown drawn on you, which is, I remember the David Letterman issue with that same crown. And just the fact that you would Google shit or stick weird things on the cover, like it was someone's exercise book at school. You know, well, or when you had null with with a roll with it, just stupid jokes and stuck things here and there. The art direction. I am stupid. I'm intelligent but stupid. But again, that yeah, was but a- that, that was what people wanted. There were so many people. Thought, I'm intelligent but stupid. But I didn't realise I could reveal that. But these blokes are all celebrating it. Yeah, but you know what? And again, that was a deliberate thing. I I wrote down that, and again, I haven't put this in the book, but I I wrote down that we should deal with 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 like populist things really seriously and like really serious things in a throwaway way you know we should reverse it and you know the um the book cover it's done by a guy called andrew smith don't don't bother searching him because there's a million andrew smiths you know i know about three but he on instagram he's fifer one f-i-f-e-r one he's from fife andrew did the cover and it's a it's it's a lowercase headline, Animal House, in the same font that Loaded was in. And then and then the, the my name is like we used to do the headlines across. Yeah. What's what's funny is, and then as you said, it's got a yellow crown felt tipped onto and my and a starburst, which also was very common on loaded covers. Yeah, and but that photo's from the Guardian. I always yeah. remember that photo. I styled that. That's on the you can look at the bottom of it, there's a piece of scaffolding. That's on the roof of my office when I had my own company. And this, this guy, David Silito, I don't know, I forget his name. His surname was Silito. He was the writer, David Silito's son, showed up with a bunch of flowers. I said, what have you bought them for? He said, I thought you'd give ring out your feminine side. I said, fuck that. Come on, let's get up on the roof. And I'd been on the roof the day before and just noticed that there was a scaffolding rig. And I love that picture. And the Guardian had that on the front of their media section when I launched my own, my own thing. So I was just sending them pictures and they, they liked that picture. But the thing with drawing on the cover was that came from an interview with Kevin Keegan that, that John Wilde did. Oh, yeah. If you remember when the Do I Not Like That, no, not um, I Would Love It. Yeah. Newcastle was so exciting. He'd, he'd put together an absolutely brilliant team with Albert at the back and Ginella running through the middle. And, you know, he had, a, he had you know, a, a Keegan's team was fantastic, you know, and... It was so exciting to watch them play. And I mean, it was one of those moments where, unless you're a Sunderland fan or maybe a Borough fan, you could just support another team, not in colour, but in, in, in enthusiasm for how brilliant they were. And then we went, we sent a really good photographer up, a really good writer, and he wouldn't do a proper photo shoot. He was sulking. Maybe the stress was always getting, already getting to him. And he's kind of got these eyes. He looks like a little fish, Keegan. He's on the picture. His eyes are like bulgy. And 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 these pictures came out. And Steve said, I mean, Steve Pike, he's got an OBE or CBE or something now for his work that he did with the veterans. Steve said Keegan wouldn't do a colour shot. So he looked at these pictures and it was so disappointing that there was no colour shot. There was no sort of cockiness like we often would have with a, an Ardlow Hanlon or, 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 or somebody like that on the cover. And 
I was just, I remember looking at it and staring at it and staring at it. Steve had printed it out and he'd print the logo out and Keegan's face and he'd put some dummy copy. And I just got his red marker pen. They used to have this pencil that he'd do the chrome. Mm. I drew glasses on it, just like you do in a magazine. And then underneath her, I suppose you think that's funny. And they were looking at me, wondering what I was doing. I said, that's it. And they went, what? I said, that's it. That's the cover line. And that's the thing. And they were like, I would regularly do things that would have to double check to see if I was being serious or not. And, <laughs> and so, we, so we did that as a cover. So then when Steve did David Letterman with the crown, he just did that off his own, his own back. But, you know, it was just... You know, I'd started in fanzines where I could do anything and other editors used to say to me at Loaded, you do things that we pretend to do or wish we could do or we do it when we just, we put a funny headline. Mucking about, yeah. And then we do the proper headline. Well, I just thought headlines were just, were just good for making people laugh, you know. Sushi in the Van Keys for going and being a roadie in Japan. Michael, Hol Michael Holden wrote that cover line or... We were struggling to get one about... We had a big piece with Irving Welsh. And eventually the picture editor, who himself was Scottish, just swivelled round in his seat and went, HIV positive. Because <laughs> it was a book about, you know... Hips, yeah. Needles and, 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 you know, and you could get HIV yeah. from intravenous just sharing needles. And he was a Hibs fan. It was like, you know, even the picture editor was coming up with headlines. And, and we were doing it to try and compete with each other who make each other laugh yeah yeah and it so it loaded never felt like work ever but we worked hard you know we, we all like there was a lot of words in there and a lot of pictures and a lot of layout a lot of ads so everybody on it was working hard but it was enjoyable you know it was like chopping logs you know it was just it was something that needed doing but it feels good to do it james but, thanks by the fucking book. Yeah, by the book. I can't recommend this book highly enough um, for all the reasons I've already said. Listen, thanks ever so much for your time, mate. And congratulations I and well done on the book and, and on everything. You're an inspiration. Well done. Cool. Thanks, Sam. That was James Brown, a great man. Buy his book. It's brilliant. It's called Animal House and it's out on the 15th of September. There's a link in the blurb under this episode. Thanks for listening as always. Please subscribe to The Reset at sandelaney.substat.com and consider upgrading to The Reset Extra for just a fiver a month. You get extra exclusive podcasts and newsletters and your help keep this thing going. Until next time, gang, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down. <laughs>